Our Father in heaven, we come to you now in your presence. We thank you that you are God who has kindly revealed yourself to us. You have not hurt yourself. And you speak to us today through your word. We ask, Father, that your spirit, the spirit of your Son, will be at work in each and every one of our hearts today, that you will change our heart, that you will make it ever true, that you help us to recognize and to see again that you are creator and we are creature, you are the potter and we are the clay. And when we recognize that, Father, may all glory and honor goes to you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. How many of you have heard of the word Christology? Christology. A few, isn't it? Well, it's, a, it's just a fancy word that theologians like to use to describe our understanding of Christ. Christ, Christology. Who he is and what he has come to do. Everyone has a Christology. Some of us know a little bit about Christ. Some of us know him more. Some of us have a picture of Christ that represents the real Christ more accurately than others. Some of us have a completely wrong view of Christ. Christ is completely different from the Christ that we see in the Bible. So basically, the question is not whether you have a Christology, but what kind of Christology do you have? For example, according to the Bible, Muslims have a faulty Christology. Muslims have a faulty Christology because they don't believe that Jesus is the Son of God. They don't believe that he died for our sins. To them, he is just another prophet. How about you? What is your Christology? And is your Christology faulty? Because it matters. It matters because it shaped what you expect of Christ and how you treat him. And it matters because that might not be the true Christ that you have. Well, ever since Jesus began his public ministry at the age of about 30, big crowds have been gathering around him. They heard him teach. They saw him heal. They witnessed him casting out demons. So the crowd has been developing their Christology, who Jesus is, what he came to do, and what he can do for them, the crowd. And like the crowd, you and I have been developing our Christology as well over the past few weeks. Each new episode that we encounter in Luke tells us a little bit more about who Jesus is and what he came to do. So the question for today is, how does this passage that we just read add to our Christology? How does it help us to understand Christ more? What do you think? Well, some of you may say, well, that's simple, Kenneth. Firstly, it tells us that Christ has power over sickness. Secondly, it tells us that he has power over death. But think about it. Haven't we already seen his power over sickness? He rebuilt a high fever right at the beginning. He healed the leper, the paralyzed man, the man with withered hand, and a dying centurion servant. We have seen that. And haven't we seen already that he has power over death? He raised the dead widow's son straight from his coffin. He has demonstrated that already. So could the raising of Jairus' daughter and the healing of the bleeding women that we see here today just be serving to add on to his portfolio? Or is there more to it? Is there more that these two episodes add to our Christology? 
Well, the passage this morning actually shows us that there is more to Jesus than healing miracles. Yes, he can heal, he can even raise the dead, but that is not at the heart of who Jesus is and what he came to do. What is your Christology? Is Jesus just a miracle healer whom you seek whenever that you're unwell? Well, I used to work as an engineer. I designed and I built manufacturing lines uh, to make products such as chips, not fish and chips, but microchips and hard drives. Whenever the production line yields drop, I need to visit the line and check out the line and troubleshoot. And I love troubleshooting. That is getting to the heart of the problem. But I dread dealing with my clients. Most of my time, my clients, the immediate clients, are the production workers and the supervisors. And most of them care only about hitting the quota for the day. So they don't really care about the root issue of what's happening. Usually, back in those days, they'll say, Hey, our boy, I tell you, don't tell me all so much story. Just patch things up and let me get on with it and make my, meet my production target. I say, but uncle, you don't understand. If I just do that, the problem will come back and bite you. If not tomorrow, next week, and next year, I don't want to know. That would be the reaction. They are not interested in the root problem. Friends, sickness and death is not the root issue that Jesus came to resolve. There is a deeper issue, a bigger agenda beyond healing that he came for. And today's passage will show us just that. But may God give us the years to hear. So let's begin. The passage starts with verse 40. Verse 40 tells us, Now when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. Well, the episode begins with a very intense picture of Jesus' arrival. There was a big welcome party at the arrival hall, if you can imagine. Everyone was relieved to finally see Jesus back on this side of the lake. He was been away. If you can imagine, it is a bit like a renowned surgeon or a famous physiotherapist who had been away for a break and now he's finally back. It is intense because many have been waiting for Jesus to heal them. There is a huge backlog of people to be healed and a lot of demons to be cast out. A very long queue. Some cases are more critical than others. But basically, loads of healings and exorcism appointments waiting for Jesus to clear. He has no time to lose but a lot of OT over time. And that's the situation. So without further delay, we are introduced to the first one in line. And he is Jairus. Verse 41, we see Jairus. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue. And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house. For he had, a, he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. Well, the very first case turns out to be a fairly critical case. It involves a dying girl. The situation is made more urgent by the fact that she is the only daughter of Jairus, a very precious daughter. And she is very young. In fact, too young to die. So Jesus' well-known healing power is desperately and obviously needed here for, her daughter, for his daughter. But Jairus' predicament almost got worsened immediately 
take a look at 42. What happens next? As Jesus went, as he went on to the house, the people pressed around him. Imagine having finally found a renowned doctor for your son or your daughter who is dying and having waited for this surgeon for weeks to return. You get your son or your daughter into the car and rush him to him and then you finally drive and you go into Federal Highway and you got stuck in the jam. That's basically the situation. Jesus' progress to Jairus' home is delayed and his daughter's life still hangs on a thread. What happens next? 43. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed anyone, cannot be healed by anyone. She came up behind Jesus and touched the fringe of his garment. And immediately her discharge of blood ceased. What happened? Well, basically a suffering woman happened. Nothing surprising, actually, if you have been reading Luke. She's just one of the many, many who have infirmities, who is suffering, that's around Jesus, waiting to be healed. This particular woman is suffering from what is known today as menorrhagia, abnormally heavy and prolonged menstrual bleeding. And it has been 12 long years since she had it, and none of the treatment helps her to improve. And yet, all that she has done now is she just touched the tip of Jesus' garment and she was healed immediately. That's amazing, isn't it? Amazing healing and it's another great testimony to Jesus' stunning healing power. Now, think about it. At this point of the story, what would you expect to happen next? Bear in mind, Jesus just returned she, he has a huge backlog of patients. Many are waiting for him to heal and not forgetting he has a case on hand. He is on his way to heal a dying daughter of Jairus. I would expect Jesus to continue his way to Jairus' house, to speed up, to run the red lights, to make sure that he gets there. But look what happened. Verse 45. But Jesus said, Who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone up from me. And when the woman saw that she, has, she was not hidden, she came trembling, falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. Well, we see a big drama from Jesus. Now, if my Christology, my understanding of Jesus is that he's primarily a healer, I would be confused and even frustrated with what Jesus is doing here. Why is he such a big drama king? I will be on the same side as Peter. Come on, Jesus, you must be kidding me. First, Jairus' daughter is dying. Please remember that. And you are here complaining that someone is touching you? you cannot, can you not see that hundreds of people are around you and is touching you? Where is your sense of priority, Jesus? And secondly, fine, the woman touched you. But she got healed. That's great. One down, 999 to go. 
Let's move on. Jairus' daughter is dying. If she dies, her blood will be on your hands. Well, if Jesus is all about healing, why is he so caught up with this woman? This woman who is already healed amidst the busy schedule that he has in healing. Why is that so? Well, verse 48 gives us a hint. Verse 48 says, And Jesus said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Jesus is determined that the woman knows that it is her faith in him that has healed her. She believes in Jesus. She trusts in Jesus. Jesus wants her to know that such an attitude, such a faith in her, in her has everything to do with her healing. In other words, Jesus was bent on exposing the woman's faith in him. For that faith matters to Jesus. And do you notice the irony here? The woman was trying her best to hide herself, isn't it? She sneaked up from behind Jesus and touched him. And that's very understandable because she would have been regarded as unclean for her bleeding. You can read about it in Leviticus. No one during her days would have dared to touch her. She's unclean and she's colored from her fellowship. She's colored from religious life. The Jews have avoided her for her 12 long years. And yet, Jesus saw something in her that others don't. And Jesus wants to highlight and teach her about it. And that's her faith. And so, not only is this woman no longer physically hidden, spiritually, she's no longer hidden as well. Verse 41 says, When the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him. That is, she's no longer physically hidden. But if you remember, three weeks back, in the parable of the sower, Jesus taught this. He said, For nothing is hidden that will not be made manifest, nor anything secret that will not be known and come to light. He said it towards the end of the parable. Well, the main point of the parable back then is that, guess what? Everyone hears God's word. But each one re responds to God's word differently. Some will reject it right away. Some will superficially accept it. Some will accept it for a while while they're embracing other philosophies of life as well. And some will truly hear the word and believe and trust in that word. And the warning was, those who pretend that they're hearing, they can't pretend for long because it will be shown. And those who truly hear, they will not stay hidden for long. They will be shown. Everyone's faith will be exposed one day for what matters in God's kingdom is one's faith. One's faith is expressed in one's trust and obedience to Jesus the kingdom's king. So here in this passage, Jesus exposes the woman's faith. Many came to hear, many came to him, but she trusted, she believed, and Jesus pointed out to him, to her. Well, what do we see here? We see here that Jesus prioritizing, prioritizes teaching things of the kingdom 
over physical healing. People's urgent expectation of him to heal didn't bother him at all. Why? Because he came not to heal but to preach the kingdom. Think about all the healing that we have seen in Luke. Jesus never initiated healing. You can trace it. Right at the very beginning, Simon's mother-in-law had a high fever. They appealed to him on her behalf. The man with the leprosy, he saw Jesus, he fell face down, and he begged Jesus. The paralytic, Jesus was in fact teaching. The man brought the paralytic to Jesus. The man with a withered hand, Jesus was actually teaching in the synagogue. He healed to rebuke and to teach the scribes and the Pharisees. The objective was to teach. The centurion's servant, Jesus finished his teaching on the plane and the centurion's elders approached Jesus. And here in Jairus' case, it was Jairus who came and implored Jesus. It was the woman who came to Jesus and seek healing. Now, if your Christology tells you that Jesus came to heal sicknesses, you have to ask yourself, why is Jesus so passive about healing in the Gospels? Why does he heal only when asked? And not only is he passive about healing, he deliberately plays down healing, plays down his healing power. We see that in the second half of our story. Take a look. Verse 49. While he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, Your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, Do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. I could imagine Peter saying to Jesus, Look what you have done, Lord. In stopping to heal a lesser medical condition and forcing a small talk about it, you have allowed a life to be lost. Jairus' daughter is now dead. Well, if Peter has said that, he has a very bad Christology. He neither understands Jesus' agenda nor his power at all. Jesus here took the opportunity to teach the kingdom. He encouraged belief. He said, do not fear, only believe. He taught that faith and reliance and confidence in God and in his power. The same thing that he taught the bleeding woman that we saw. Why does he do that? Because, again, faith matters to Christ. Because the kingdom of God comprises of those who have faith in God's king. Take a look at 51. And when Jesus came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him, except Peter and John and James and the father and the mother of the child. Well, by now, the whole place would be very crowded, probably with friends and relatives of, of Jairus. Now, if Jesus is primarily a healer, a miracle worker, would he have kept the crowd out of the next amazing masterpiece that he's going to perform? Probably not. But he did. He called in only Peter and John and James, the same trio that he later called to witness the transfiguration. And probably he does that to teach them, to disciple them. And of course, he included the parents who were distraughted. Think about it. Jesus wouldn't have excluded the crowd 
if he were big on healing. But he deliberately played down his healing. And we see more of that later. Verse 52. And all were weeping and mourning for her. But he said, Do not weep, for she is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was knowing that she was dead. But taking her by the hand, he called, saying, Child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up at once, and he directed that, that, that something should be given to her to eat. Jesus did just as he had done before with the widow's son. All he did was he spoke, and he raised the dead with ease. Child arise, and then she got up at once. Was Jesus just paying lip service when he said, Do not weep, do not fear, only believe? No, he said it, he did it. Without a doubt, Jesus can heal. Think about it, why can't he? He is the giver of life, he is the sustainer of life. In him, through him, and for him, all things were created. Of course he can heal. We saw previously, he can even heal from a distance, before even reaching the house. He can heal any of those who are in the queue already. He can heal those who are already in the queue and those who are going to join the queue. But why did he do what he did next? Verse 56. Why did he do what he did next if he can heal? Verse 56 says, The parents were amazed, and he charged them to tell no one what had happened. Now, why did Jesus charge them to tell no one? Why did such a why keep such a high profile healing miracle hush hush? He could have used it to achieve great PR for himself as a healer. Well, unless Jesus doesn't want to be known as a healer. And he doesn't want to be preoccupied with the business of healing. Because he has a bigger agenda beyond healing. And healing, in fact, distracts him from his bigger goal. This explanation seems to be consistent with why Jesus wasted no potential healing time with the already healed woman. And this explanation is also consistent with what Jesus has been doing throughout the entire Gospel of Luke. Right at the beginning of his ministry, after he was tested in the desert, in chapter 4, verse 14, it says that he returned in power of the Spirit to Galilee to start his ministry. And how was this power manifested? In healing? No. 4.15 says Jesus taught in synagogue, being glorified by all. 4.17 says that he went into the synagogue, opened up the scroll, and read out Isaiah, saying, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news, proclaim the kingdom of God. Shortly after, when Jesus gained popularity, after healing Peter's mother, 442 tells us that the people sought him and came to him naturally, and they would have kept him from leaving them. But Jesus said to them, 
I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns as well. For I was sent for this purpose, preaching the kingdom of God. Jesus consistently wants to be engaged, wants to engage in not healing, but proclaiming the kingdom of God. He wants to be known not as a healer, but as a proclaimer. And this explains why Jesus wanted the crowd out of Jairus' home. For that would have stimulated even more interest in healing and not in the kingdom of God. Take a look again at chapter 8, verse 42. It says, As Jesus went to Jairus' house, the people pressed around him. Very interestingly, the word pressed here is the same Greek word that Jesus used in the parable of the sower. And guess which word is that? Choke. The people, the crowd who were waiting for Jesus to heal were choking Jesus. Choking him from his main agenda, choking him from proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. Now, let me try to pull the strings together and come to a close. What is your Christology? What is my Christology? Who do you think Jesus is? What do you think he came to do? Your Christology matters because it shapes what you expect from Christ and how you treat him. This double miracle episode that we saw today is actually part of a series of four miracles, if you notice. That comes after the parable of the sea, which is three weeks ago. Two weeks ago, we saw Jesus calm the storm. He has power over nature. Last week, we saw Jesus casting out legion. He has power over evil. Today, Jesus healed the bleeding woman. He has power over sickness. He raised Jairus' daughter. He has power over death. Jesus has power over nature, over evil, over sickness, over death. In a nutshell, Jesus has comprehensive power that only God has. So be the good soil. Listen and obey his words. Well, that, that way of reading the double miracle episode, focusing on Jesus' power over sickness, seems to flow well in the context. But as we have seen this morning, and I hope you have seen, from the way that these two episodes are intertwined, it seems to be saying more than that. More than simply Jesus' power over sickness. The passage reminds us that sickness and death is not the root issue that Jesus came to resolve. There is a deeper issue, a bigger agenda beyond healing. And healing and raising miracles that Jesus performs are simply something like spotlights. They shine upon a megastar who stands on the stage. Their function is not to attract attention to themselves, but rather to focus attention on the subject. Any one of you here who have gone to the concert to watch spotlights? No. Jesus' healings are just there to lift our eyes and lift our heads. For each of them speaks of a great act of healing that is yet to come. A great act of healing that is more important than the moment than themselves. 
Healing miracles speak of the kingdom of God that Jesus persistently preached about, the kingdom that he ushers in through his death and his resurrection. A lot of us are familiar with Revelation, especially those of us in Smack, we've just done that. Revelation 21, verse 3 and verse 4 tells us of this new kingdom that will come. Most of us are very familiar with verse 4. Verse 4 says, God will wipe away every tear from your eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Jesus came not just to bring individual immediate healing, but he came to bring cosmic scale, lasting, permanent healing for the entire world. A complete eradication of sin, of evil, and suffering. A thorough reconciliation of the whole cosmos. But notice also that Revelation 21 verse 3, the way that it describes this kingdom. It says, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and there will be his people. And God himself will be their God. Jesus came not just to bring individual immediate healing, but he came to restore the kingdom of God, where God is on the throne, where people of God finally treat God as God treating him as their king. So what is your Christology? What did you think that Jesus came to fix? Scott Blackwell is someone who has suffered from meningitis since the age of three, and he has a lot of lifelong serious health problems. So much so that by the age of 18, he said, I'm tired, starving, sick, experimenting widely with any drug that I could find, mildly suicidal and alone. But he has great insight from his book about healing miracles and the kingdom of God. Scott says that if your view and my view of Christ's work, if our view of Christ's work is through a narrow perspective of our own benefit, and our own blessing, it closes us off from all but the thinnest slice of the whole reality of redemption that we have in Christ. In reality, the salvation that God has brought is not anthropocentric, which is man-centered. It is Christocentric, which is Christ-centered. It is theocentric. It is God-centered. And it is cosmological. It engages the whole of creation, not just individuals. Yes, its blessings include a staggering generosity towards humanity, but we are not its goal. Believers need to have a much broader and a humble grasp of the big picture of Christ's work so that we can look beyond ourselves and our own points of need. We need to develop the ability to understand our place within the salvation and restoration of all things. It is past the time that the cross of Christ is brought back to the center of Christian faith, preaching and practice. 
to be understood and recognized as the true and only place where ultimate healing is found. For it is at the cross where the man who is Jesus becomes the Messiah who is Jesus. It is at the cross where the Almighty God becomes my Heavenly Father. It is at the cross where the where rebellious sinner becomes beloved son. But to all who did receive him, who believe in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. And there is no greater healing than this. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that Jesus came to heal the entire world, the entire cosmos. And that goes beyond physical healing. Physical healing is just a preview as what we have seen last week of the greater things that you have come to restore. To restore humanity who have sinned against you to yourself. We thank you for the work of Christ, the faithful life that he has lived, the perfect life that he has lived that we have failed to live, and the death that he died that reconciled us to you. We thank you that his work destroys sin and sicknesses and death. And we thank you that we can now be part of the kingdom by faith, trusting in him as our saviour, as our king. Father, we thank you for the physical healings that you, in your generosity, has brought to your people, including people today in our congregation, and the restoration that you have brought about. But we recognise, Father, that there are times when believers, brothers and sisters, do not receive such physical healings on this side of heaven. We pray, the Father, that in those times, our eyes will look upon heaven, will look to the cross, and remember that there is healing beyond healing. The greatest healing that you have given to us, the forgiveness of our sins, have secured the ultimate future, future in Christ, that we all have. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.